This afternoon, we will be looking at the doctrine of Christ's suffering, and we'll be examining that as we find it in Lord's Day 15, which you can find on page 529 of your Book of Praise. What do you confess when you say that he suffered? During all the time he lived on earth, but especially at the end, Christ bore in body and soul the wrath of God against the sin of the whole human race. Thus, by his suffering as the only atoning sacrifice, he has redeemed our body and soul from everlasting damnation and obtained for us the grace of God, righteousness, and eternal life. Why did he suffer under Pontius Pilate as judge? Though innocent, Christ was condemned by an earthly judge, and so he freed us from the severe judgment of God that was to fall on us. Does it have a special meaning that Christ was crucified and did not die in a different way? Yes. Thereby I am assured that he took upon himself the curse which lay on me, for a crucified one was cursed by God. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, last week it happened that the, the uh, doctrinal topic that we covered under Lord's Day 14 overlapped beautifully with the Christmas season. As we worked our way together through this doctrine of the conception and birth of Christ, we were able to keep this season in mind. We were able to see how Christ's decision to be conceived and born into the world taking on our human nature from the flesh and blood of the Virgin Mary allowed him to be our perfect mediator. We also saw how with his innocence and perfect holiness he was able to cover in the sight of God our sin in which we are conceived and born. Today's doctrinal topic continues along those same lines. While we are no longer speaking about the birth of the baby, we are speaking about the reason that he came into the world. And what better point to start the new year on than the reason for our life, our new life under God. And so today, we will be examining how our Lord's suffering opened our way to glory. And we'll see, first of all, his suffering in life, second, his suffering in conviction, and third, his suffering under the curse. Last week in the morning service, we touched down briefly on the way that Christ allowed himself to be stripped of glory and born into humble circumstances. If those of you who are here remember, we touched down on Philippians 2 where we read, Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of man. His very birth, which should have been hailed by people everywhere, was in itself a humbling experience. Not only did he not receive the honor due to him, but he was also born into poverty and rejection. And so began his suffering that would continue throughout the remainder of his life. 
For 30 years before entering into his ministry, he was a simple carpenter living in Nazareth. He wasn't hailed as a king or a hero, but he did his day-to-day work. Just as anyone in the industry, he would have had his difficult customers and he would have worked with good ones. He would have done a job for the guy who has the reputation of shafting you and for the one who offers lunch to whoever's working on his projects. While studying hard and asking good questions, as he did when he was a 12-year-old boy quizzing scholars at the temple, he also faithfully carried out his day-to-day tasks. Just as us, he had friends who were very precious to him. But even with regards to his friendship, he suffered. We read in John 11 that he loved his dear friends Lazarus, Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. When Lazarus died, Jesus wept. He knew that he could and would raise Lazarus, so his weeping was not for him. He wept because he saw the brokenness that both sin and death as the wages of sin caused in this world. He wept because he saw how it shattered relationships and tore apart families. He wept because he knew that even though he would raise Lazarus, death would one day tear apart those bonds again. He experienced the fullness of life on this earth with all of its grandeur, all of its joys, and all of its sorrows. But the sorrows that he experienced would have been much more vivid for him. For us, our senses are dulled to a certain extent by experiencing it again day upon day upon day. And they're dulled because of the fact that we see suffering in the news over and over again. We watch it in the TV shows that we watch. We see it in so many other places, and so our senses are dulled towards it. And yet we feel the weight of it. Now for Jesus Christ, the feeling of suffering in this world, recognizing his suffering in this world, it would have weighed so much more heavily on him. Because he knew, he knew how it should have been. He was there at the beginning of the world when everything was created. We read in John 1, through him all things were made and without him nothing was made that has been made. He was there when it was made. He was there when it was declared to be very good. He knew how life should have been. He experienced perfection. And now, He was fully experiencing what man had done to corrupt the flawlessness and the beauty of that creation. The scope of this suffering broadened as his earthly ministry began. In the three years before his death, he became a very public figure, and certainly some appreciated his ministry, but many actively opposed him. Have you ever had someone you know that tried at every point to bring you down, to trip you up, to make you look foolish in front of your friends? Now imagine that multiplied with them being specialists in your field of study, influential people who have many resources. 
and who have made it their mission to make everyone hate you and to kill you. And yet, Christ did it. He was obedient in life, obedient to the task that he was commissioned for. He obeyed throughout his life, perfectly obeying God's law and the plan that had been laid out for him from eternity. His obedience caused much suffering in his life. Many times he could have turned to the right or turned to the left. He could have knelt before Satan. But he chose the way of suffering that we might never have to suffer again. And in him, our death puts an end to our earthly suffering, our life of suffering. Because of his life of suffering, our death becomes a gateway, a gateway into life eternal. There we will live with him in glory, living a life without tears or mourning or crying or pain, a life without the brokenness brought on by sin which so damages relationships and destroys people. A life bought for us by Christ's taking upon himself the punishment that was meant for us. This is our second point. Christ's suffering was heightened as he came to the end of his life. And it was heightened especially under a false conviction. And that gives us much to be thankful for. Wait a second, you might be thinking. How could we be thankful for a false conviction? Don't we read in Deuteronomy, if the witness is a false witness who has testified falsely against his brother, then you shall do to him as he thought to have done to his brother? Aren't there also many Bible texts about judges not perverting justice? How can this be something that we're thankful for? Brothers and sisters, we must always remember that while man proposes, God disposes. As the scriptures say, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Man can sin. Man can make false judgments, but God has promised that in all things he works for the good of those who love him. How much more does that become a reality through his only son? And this is true. Let's take a moment to examine how it is true. The conviction which Pontius Pilate carried out was one which had no basis. We can see this early in Christ's ministry already. The opponents of Jesus were trying again and again to trip him up in his words, to catch him in saying something sinful. Yet again and again he was able to leave them confounded. In, this, in his trial, they kept examining him late into the night, bringing up one false witness after another, hoping that something would stick. And yet nothing did stick. Even by the admission of their own courts, they were not able to find anything that would convict Christ. It was only when he opened his mouth after many long hours and affirmed the truth about himself, about who he was, that they were able to find something that they felt they could convict him on. Now, it was not for no reason that they brought Jesus before the Sanhedrin to be tried. It wasn't as if they picked him up randomly off the street, but 
They had him on trial for hour upon hour because they were trying to further their own agenda. Yes, they hated him. Yes, they hated their popularity. But for some of them, they also hated what he might represent. He represented the hopes and dreams of many to foment a revolt against Roman imperial rule. And these Jews were frightened of this. All they saw was a mass slaughter coming over the horizon and a loss of their authority. For them, Christ represented a threat to their power that had to be eliminated, and so they were willing to try falsely convicting him. We read in John 11, If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was a high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people instead of the whole nation perishing. And so they plotted that by any means possible, they would find a pretext to kill him. That they would find a reason that they could falsely convict him and destroy him. However, even the admission that the Sanhedrin received from Jesus, even that was only the slimmest possible evidence that could be presented for a death penalty. And it wasn't even enough for Pontius Pilate. They didn't even bring it up before him. All they brought up before him was the fact that this man was trying to create a rebellion. And so they wanted him put out of the way. That this man was stirring up people all over. But Pontius Pilate found no proof of this. He found no reason to convict Jesus. Again, it was not enough for Herod to do any more than question him, dress him up and humiliate him, and then send him on his way. He couldn't find anything either. We read in Matthew 27 that even Pontius Pilate's wife pled on behalf of him. And yet, it was all to no avail. Fully acknowledging Christ's innocence, Pilate carried on all the same. He decided to bend to them after all. He recognized that to convict Jesus would be wrong. And, but he decided to bend to them after all. He quite literally washed his hands of the matter. He would lend his authority, but he admitted that he would only do so in as far as it was openly condemning an innocent man. Now, this is an important point. The fact that Christ was condemned as an innocent needs to be noted because it is an important fact for our salvation. For if Christ had been condemned for something he had done, he would be rightfully condemned. And the Apostle Peter rightly points out, how is it to one's credit if you are beaten for your faults and you take it patiently? You simply get what you deserve. And yet, because there is no credit in that, one who is himself a sinner cannot pay for the sins of others. That was why it was of utmost importance for Christ to be innocent and to be publicly declared as innocent so that the whole world could have this evidence that Christ died as an innocent.
by this event, God was filling his own ends. God was using it to his own ends. By this event, God was fulfilling the requirements of a conviction that was needed. How is that just, you might ask? How is it just for Christ to be convicted? How is it just for him to be convicted for what I have done? For he was convicted at the end of the day for what we had done. That is why he died as an innocent. Now the phrase for this is penal substitutionary atonement. Kids, your parents might ask you about this, so pay attention. Penal substitutionary atonement. This is an amazing doctrine that comes out of Christ's innocence. Penal substitutionary atonement is the heart of the gospel. It sounds a bit complicated, but you can break it down pretty easily. Penal, think penalty. When you're playing hockey and you get in trouble for hooking or cross-checking or unsportsmanlike conduct, you get thrown into the penalty box. There are consequences for doing something wrong. Likewise, when we sin, there are consequences, and there is a penalty that needs to be paid one way or another, and that penalty is the weight of the wrath of God. Substitutionary. Think substitution. Again, you can think of hockey. When players go off, somebody gets subbed on, and they take the place of the player who went off. It's the replacement of one for another. Your coach is replacing you with somebody else. Now, this was something that was already seen early on in the Bible. The precedent for this was already set in Genesis 22, where Abraham was allowed to substitute a ram as a sacrifice for his son. The Lord had asked for a life, and he was the one who provided the life to be taken. And this continued on. Similarly, we ourselves were under the penalty of the wrath of God. But through faith in Jesus Christ, we have been removed from the position of debtor, and Christ has been put there into our place. Substitution. The Lord asks for a life. And knowing that we cannot do this in our own strength, he provides for a way out. Now, atonement, penal substitutionary atonement, atonement gets a little bit more complicated. You can't use a hockey analogy for that one. Atonement is a concept that we already see in the Old Testament. It's a word to describe blood being spilled to pay for sin. All throughout the Old Testament, we see sacrifices. Whenever sin needs to be atoned for, blood needs to be involved. As we read in Hebrews, without blood, there is no remission for sins. The reason for this is because blood was connected to life. God put this into place already early on, and we can see this in Genesis 9, verse 6, where it says, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, because life was connected with blood. The same pattern of connecting life with blood continues later through the sacrifices, the sprinkling of the blood in the altar rituals and on the Day of Atonement. 
This was because, as we read in Leviticus, for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is blood that makes atonement for the soul. Now, the difficulty with animals is that they could only be representative. They could never actually pay for sin, but showed the people that their sins deserve death. Their blood, their own blood, should be poured out on the altar instead of the blood of this animal. For it was human nature that sinned and not animals. And that is why Christ came in the flesh as we celebrate at Christmas. That was his whole reason for entering into the world. Mankind sinned under Adam, but Christ, as the second Adam, was God who became man. He paid the penalty in the flesh. Humanity was tainted, but Christ's perfection in his humanity meant that he could pay. As a human, he shared in the wrath of God against humanity, but he was unique in that he was perfect. By his perfection, by his innocence, he was able to stand before God as righteous and holy and be the man that bridged the chasm between us and God. He was able to stand before God, fully atoning for our sin. Fully atoning for our sin as our substitute and paying our penalty. What glorious news for us. We are righteous and holy under Christ's penal substitutionary atonement. His conviction means that we are declared righteous before God. Recognize in yourselves the depths of your sin, brothers and sisters. Take ownership of the sins that are in your life and face them head on. Fight them with all you have. But when that guilt seems to threaten to overwhelm you, don't despair. For you have a high priest who sacrificed himself as a substitution for you. Believing in him, you no longer stand as guilty before God. But turn to him in faith. Because, yes, your sins are great, but God's payment is, Christ's payment is so much greater. This is our third point. His suffering was under a curse. By Christ's penal substitutionary atonement, we can stand as righteous before God. But we need to understand the depths of that suffering to fully grasp what that penalty we avoided entailed. In the famous movie, The Passion of the Christ, it's said that Mel Gibson tried to portray the suffering that Christ experienced, that Christ endured as realistically as possible. Leaders and leaders of fake blood were used in many different scenes. The brutal torture that Christ went through was displayed in vivid and gory detail. Every aspect of Christ's suffering that could be shown was shown. The difficulty with such an approach is that it pales in comparison with the true suffering of Christ. And that's not just because you can't experience through a screen the full scope of someone's suffering. It's because Christ was suffering under the curse of God for us. And how do we know that he suffered under the curse? 
How do we know that he really bore the weight of the wrath of God for us and that he didn't just suffer and die? How do we have evidence that Christ was the penal, was the person who fulfilled the penal substitutionary atonement? It was because of his crucifixion that we have proof of this, that we have evidence for this. Christ's crucifixion was public proof, very public. You couldn't get much more public than being suspended up on a cross in front of crowds. That he was under the curse of God. Why? We read in Galatians 3, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. All who sin are under a curse. But Christ has lifted this curse for all who believe in him. You see, this public demonstration, this, what he did, was a public demonstration to all that he had borne the curse. Everyone can look back in history and see, yes, this is an act that was done. People have testified to this crucifixion. I can trust that the curse that lay on me is lifted. Brothers and sisters, let us rejoice. This past year may have been full of sin and heartbreak for you. There may have been much wrong done. But you can move forward into this new year with a clean slate because your sins are forgiven. We who are under a curse are free. Christ's work has atoned for us, lifting the penalty from us, and the way to glory for us has been thrown open. And so now, in the reality of what Christ has done, his suffering under the full curse of God, as the substitution for us, under this reality, let us move forward into the year with light hearts, rejoicing for fresh opportunities to serve our Lord and our King. Amen.